Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Well, as I think pretty much every skier knows, a whole lot of snow is currently falling on the western side of North America, and while this is absolutely cause for celebration, this is also a time for any of us who are thinking about getting into the backcountry to exercise a whole lot of good sense and wisdom. And so given this powerful storm system rolling through, I thought it would be a very good time to get Zach Guy back on the Blister podcast. We had Zach on on February 1st earlier this year, and it was a fantastic episode. And actually, and I'm really happy to say this, it was one of our most listened to Blister podcast episodes of all time. And that is good news because Zach was dropping all sorts of fantastic insights and just extremely important stuff for, again, all of us to know if we are headed into the backcountry. Zach is the lead forecaster for the Crested Butte Avalanche Center. He has a lot of experience in snow science and in forecasting, and I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to episode 161. That was the previous episode that I did with Zach, and we talk a whole lot more about his own background in that conversation. Furthermore, in the show notes to this episode, we're going to include links to a number of conversations related to backcountry travel and AVI forecasting and decision-making in the backcountry. And right now, and I'm recording this conversation on Sunday, December 26th at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We saw that a lot of ski areas had to shut down today due to extremely heavy winds. So if you couldn't ride chairlifts today, and if it's not quite the right time to be getting into the backcountry, maybe this is a really good time to listen to some extremely experienced people talking about backcountry travel and decision-making and snow science, etc. So you can find links to those six other episodes in the show notes to this episode. And then in this new conversation with Zach Guy, which we recorded on Thursday, December 23rd at 1 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Well, in this conversation, Zach offers a bit of a recap of last season, We talk a bit about demographics and who it is that has been getting caught in avalanches. Zach walks us through the snowpack of this season. And we talk about some of the factors that make for a simple snowpack and some factors that make for a pretty complex snowpack, which is kind of what we're seeing in a whole lot of places. Zach also talks about when we have moments where we are in the middle of a big storm system, Where should people think about touring and where shouldn't they? We discuss some other best practices. And then we kind of wrap things up by actually talking about what Zach tends to bring in his own pack when he's out on his own fun day ski touring or when he is out in the field working and gathering data. So yeah, lots of good stuff in this conversation once again. And I would 
also strongly encourage you to check out those other conversations that I mentioned. Again, you'll find those in the show notes to this episode. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by Avocado, makers of the Avocado Green Mattress, which is the highest rated mattress of any category on Consumer Reports. And furthermore, Avocado is the first carbon negative mattress company on the planet. So their sustainability game is quite on point. You can learn more about Avocado's products at avocadogreenmattress.com. And you can also check out my ongoing article called Jonathan's Sleep Experiment to learn more about some of the things that I'm doing and reading and listening to and some of the products I've been using to try to get better at this whole sleep game. And finally, one more thing. If you'd like to come visit us in our home base here in Crested Butte, Colorado. Well, United Airlines now has more flights coming into the Gunnison Airport, and you can find all of the current flight information into the Gunnison Airport, along with a whole bunch of helpful logistical information in our guide called Getting Here, Gunnison and Crested Butte. That guide is on our site, or you can also find that in the show notes to this episode. And with that, let's now go ahead and get to my conversation with Zach Guy. Here we go. Well, I am very happy to have Zach Guy back in Blister headquarters. I will say, Zach, I'm somewhat profoundly disappointed, though, in that one of the last times I saw you was at one of our friend's birthday parties and you were rocking, I believe, a pink pair of very oversized sunglasses. And I was really hoping you'd be wearing those today, which you are not. <laughs> you should have told me that we were filming this instead of just, I thought it was an audio thing. <laughs> That's true. Okay, so next time if we do video, yeah, maybe you'll wear I'll that same. Okay, okay. If you remember, I also had like really short shorts on. Oh, I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, my, my eyes can't unsee yeah, that part of it. Anyway, so yeah, when, when Zach is not keeping all of us safe here in the Gunnison Valley, he's usually dressed up in absurd costumes, having a very good time. Actually, just that's put a period at the end of that sentence. <laughs> not even necessarily at friends' birthday parties. Just, yeah. So um, anyway, good to have you back. Good to be here. So the occasion for this conversation is just that we have some pretty monster storms developing in the Western United States. And to be honest, I thought like this might be a very good occasion to circle back with you and just get some people thinking again about some, uh, well, timely things to be thinking about. So we are going to be talking about you know, this season, but maybe where we start is actually, I'd love to have you give us a bit of a recap of last season. Yeah, absolutely. Last year was kind of a horrific year for the avalanche world. We saw a record number of avalanche fatalities, um, I think 37 total. And those number, those stats go kind of start in the 1950s. Um, before that, there actually were probably more fatalities in the early 1900s with mining and Whatnot, but kind of once we started thorough record keeping and once the, the industry shifted from like trains and mines and all the rest towards um, backcountry use, 
that's kind of when the stats started coming in into play. And so anyways, the, this last year was the highest number of fatalities in the U.S. since the 1950s. Um, in Colorado, we also tied the high, high water mark of 12. So um, both regionally and nationally, it was a bad year. Um, the one, I guess, light in this whole situation is that even though we saw a high number of fatalities, if you compare it to like the number of users going into, out to the backcountry, like we would see almost a tenfold increase in fatalities, um, but we aren't seeing that rise in, in fatalities like you would expect. So there, there is um, hope that our, you know, our, it's, it's quite clear that our um, avalanche forecasting and our education and the gear and everything else is effective in reducing fatalities. It's just, um, it's tough to see a bad year like that last year. And I don't think any of us was particularly surprised. It was, you know, we knew with COVID, with the pandemic, there was a surge in backcountry use. Um, so there was kind of this expectation that we would see more accidents. Um, and then it also kind of collided with what was a really bad snowpack year. And so the two kind of forces combined just created a pretty bad year for, for avalanche fatalities. Yeah. And honestly, I, if you had told me at the start of last season, if you had said, we're going to have 12 fatalities in Colorado. Yeah, to be honest, I think I would have said that sounds pretty good compared to how it could have gone last year. Yeah, so I think that is fair to talk about that number relative to the number of people getting out, new people getting out. Yeah, the the trend has been basically flat for the last 10 or 15 years, despite a significant increase in users and we don't have a great metric on that like we don't it's beyond our resources to like count everybody going out in the backcountry but we have some things that we look at like website statistics we look at gear sales like different things like that that kind of give us a clue that something that we all anecdotally see is that more people are in the backcountry so like i said like last year was a bad year but generally the trend has been promising and that, that like we are seeing we aren't seeing the increase of fatalities matching the increase in use. I'd love to have you talk a little bit about demographics, a sense of who's getting out or who's getting into trouble. Uh, what can you tell us along those lines? Yeah, last year was an interesting year um, in in that the, the users that were getting caught weren't necessarily the type of users that I think people expected during like this COVID-induced surge into the backcountry. I think people said like, oh, it's going to be a lot of like newbies, like rookies. We've got all these, you know, ski towns are getting flooded with Zoom boom and we're getting a lot of people from the cities that may not be as experienced. So like we're worried about those people. But really it was more um, more experienced people, more and, and older people getting caught than like the average in our demographics. And, and one of the interesting um, subjects that's been brought up recently is we're seeing an increase in the age of people who are dying in avalanches. It was, it's a, it's a, significant you know statistically significant trend in the in the data and i don't know exactly what the averages are over the last 20 years but it's rising it was like maybe the late 20s was the average age for a while now it's into the mid 30s or something like that and last year we saw a lot of older a lot of older males like males in their 50s even in their 60s 40s um so i think that was yeah, it really showcased that trend that's been going on now for several years or a dozen years or something like that. This raises the question, right, of whether if it's an older 
demographic is this tied to, well, that demographic is simply getting out into the backcountry more. And so there are more opportunities for something to go awry. Or is there a different factor at play here? And what what's your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think at this point, it's it's all just speculative. You could come up with a number of reasons. One is like that is that generation sort of a riskier generation that is um, kind of aging. And so thus the like fatalities are following them as they age. That could be one theory. Um, you know, one is that like our avalanche education is really effective for people who are taking our courses. And so we're seeing more like, you know, younger people coming in taking avalanche one, avalanche two, and, and our forecasts are targeted for those people that are educated. So maybe, um, those guys that are in their fifties that took an avalanche course 20 years ago, maybe it's a different, you know, I don't know what the word is there, um, paradigm or something where they're not they're not quite as hip on some of the, the modern education and, and stuff like that. That could be one solution or one explanation. One, one that's been brought up, I think is how the, just the shift in trends of like the, how a human develops through their lifespan. Like, I think for a while it was like people were in their twenties, they were single and that was kind of like, like risk-taking years. And then in their thirties, they got married and got, had kids and settled down. And I think now there's this, a little bit of a shift in lifestyles where people in their thirties aren't necessarily getting married and having kids, or if they're doing it, they're doing it a little later. And so I think, I think that's a pretty instrumental step in people's lives is when they, when they get married or have kids, they kind of take a step back in their risk, their level of risk acceptance. And so maybe some of these, these older age groups that are getting caught are people who, you know, are still on that kind of like younger riskier generation if you will i don't know um that could be one or it could be you know i think there's some some life stresses that happen with with age and and in our modern world you know I, I think especially with the pandemic like a lot of um a lot of stress and when you when you're stressed like when you're having a frustrating time at work or frustrating you know financial issues or whatever like you kind of you accept more risk you take more risk in the backcountry because it's just like a way of letting go of all the other problems that you have at home or whatever. So I, I could see that being the case in the last few years, especially of just like, you know, it's been stressful. People have lost their jobs or people are like, can't afford to live in, in the mountain towns anymore. There's a lot that's been complicating everyone's lives lately. So, um, that could certainly be contributing to, there's a lot of, a lot of speculation, I guess. And I don't really know the answer. Anything else you think we should highlight about last season before we turn to the present day? Yeah, I think another real interesting thing was that we saw this cluster of avalanche fatalities and it all happened in February. It was like from, I think the last week of January into mid mid or late February, it was like almost an avalanche fatality every single day. And it was really frightening to see that trend happening. We were like, it's like, how do you stop this? And there were these clusters, like groups of four or five that were getting caught and killed. And, you know, there's a big one in Utah that made the news there was a couple big ones in colorado and so um that cluster was a bit unusual it's not unusual to see multiple people getting buried in avalanche i think that like that caught our attention because it was all happening all at once but that i guess if you look in the last 10 to 20 years that has happened we see multiple groups getting caught but it was just like this frightening cluster 
and it all kind of came coincided with this big storm track that happened in February, like end of January into February. We had a poor snowpack structure and then the storm track showed up and it was just like, boom, 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 people going down right and left. And it's interesting that you brought me in now because we're looking at a similar storm track where we're looking at a prolonged loading event that will last several weeks, it looks like. So let's then just talk about the very start of this season, right? And I guess now we are, just to be clear, we are specifically talking about Colorado. We're not now, I don't know how much, I mean, you've worked in. I've worked in Montana and here, uh, skied all over the place. Okay. Yeah. I have a little bit of a background on what's going on around the country, but for the most part, I can just speak on behalf of Colorado and probably Utah because they've had a lot of similarities as us too. So before we get to this storm that, well, which started, talk about how things have been setting up early season here. Yeah, we've in Colorado and specifically Crested Butte, we, we have kind of two major week layer events that developed. We had one that was a really prolonged dry spell from November, mid-November into early December. Um, unusually warm temperatures with that one as well. So what, on the, the good side of that one is that that week layer only formed really on half of the snow on the compass, um, north half, the north half. So that was our first week layer event. We had a big storm in early December, December 10th, um, that just really hit that week layer hard. We had a sort of unprecedented, like, 18 hour snowfall event and we saw extensive avalanche activity on that week layer. Um, and then since then we've had dry weather, you know, for the last week with this time a lot colder temperatures. Um, so now we're getting week layer development on all aspects. It's faceting all the new, all the snow that fell in December, that those surfaces are faceting out again, um, especially in our shallower snowpacks and it's getting really weak again. So now we basically have a week layer around the compass, all aspects. We have two weak layers on the northern half of the compass, at least two. There's actually another surface hoar layer in there as well. Um, so a lot of weak layers, some complexity in that some weak layers are weaker than others, depending on where you are on aspect or within the zone. So there's, there's variability um, going into this thing, which, which will make, I, I think anytime there's variability, that's more, more chances for surprises. Because when things are simple, we kind of understand, like with that last cycle, it's like we know the north half of the compass is bad. We know the south half is good. Our travel advice was super simple. The cycle was super simple. Um, now it's like we're getting this gradual, maybe not gradual loading, but a continual loading through the next couple of weeks. We've got all this variability. So it's like we'll see avalanches going, but not all of them at all the same time. And it's just going to, it's going to make things more complex and probably more surprising for backcountry travelers who like maybe they see a you know stable slope here and unstable slope there it's just going to be variable you've just touched on all of this but i might slow us down for a second and have you articulate this out again sort of talk about what simple looks like right as it relates to snowpack and things ripping or being stable or not so like can you give us a kind of general sense of like this, in your view, as a forecaster and a snow science guy, this would be the quote unquote simple setup. Yeah, like the, the conditions we had the last month, I'd say like are fairly simple as a forecaster or as a somewhat experienced backcountry traveler because we had it's, it's sort of black and white where the hazards were. We knew where the weak layer was. We had it really well documented. We traveled around, took photos of the weak layer as it was 
forming. Um, we knew exactly what aspects it was on. And we had one slab forming event above that one weak layer. So if you dug a pit or if you got a collapse, you knew exactly what that weak layer was. And if you dug a pit on a south facing slope and it went down to dirt and it was just like three feet of snow on dirt, you also knew that that weak layer wasn't there. So you felt confident. I mean, I've had some great aggressive avalanche ski lines the last two weeks skiing south facing stuff that I'm just like, I have no concerns and it's been really fun north facing stuff like so much stuff avalanche with that last event that we were actually stepping out into a lot of north facing stuff too during that dry spell because we could see the slab was gone that like the assessment was pretty simple um one slab one week layer on a well-known aspect now like in contrast you know it's it's getting more complex because we have multiple week layers we have multiple sort of slab forming events. We've got that slab from December. And now we've got this new slab that will be coming in. We've got layers that are quite variable on how weak they are. Some are like not that bad. Some are like really weak and everything across the spectrum. So that just means that like if I go to this one area one day and I go somewhere else the next day, like it might be different and I can't expect the same thing. And I like I have to really be on my game with with making assessments in the, in the field. And then as forecasters, we're going to have more uncertainty. Like we're coming into this thing and we're like, okay, like what is two inches of water going to do? Is it going to start breaking out the basal weak layers? Is it going to just be going on the, the more recent weak layer and what happens with those old bed services? There's just a lot more that's going on. So like, we're going to have more forecaster uncertainty. Also, anytime you have a prolonged loading event like this, it's like, we aren't getting the feedback that we got you know, with that last storm, it was like a two day storm and then it cleared up and we knew exactly what had happened. We looked around, whereas this, I might not be able to see an Alpine start zone for 10 days. Like it might be in the clouds the whole time. So it's like, I don't know what's going on up there. Like we think it's bad. We know it's dumping and it may be flushed on day one and maybe it's filling up again, or maybe it's building up a slab and it's going to go huge on day six. Like who knows? Um, we try and get as much feedback from that stuff as we can, but like the, the reality is when it's dumping out there, we can't see what's going on up in the higher peaks like we can we can see what's going on in the paths near town and we get out in the field still and look around but it's just not as as comprehensive we got to do this at some point so i might as well be right now i just want to title this particular segment of our conversation tacos and snowpack sure <laughs> care to care to elaborate on this well we use an analogy in this morning's social media post about conditions um this is actually a I don't know, a meme or something that got passed my way. But uh, we, when we're going into a storm cycle, we issue, oftentimes we issue an avalanche watch and then an avalanche warning. And we think the public sometimes is really confused about the two things. So we, we created this taco warning, taco watch to, to help explain the difference. The, the difference is an, an avalanche watch means we're expecting within the next 24 to 48 hours um, sort of high danger uh, avalanche warning criteria, meaning like very dangerous avalanche conditions, natural activity ongoing. Um, we put out a watch today and the danger is moderate. It isn't that bad out there right now. Um, but it means that the, the storm is coming and then, and then the warning will issue once the storm is like full on and once we have enough new snow to create, you know, this, the higher danger. So in the context of the tacos, the taco watch is when you've got all the ingredients cut out on your cutting board. You've got your cheese and your ground beef and your, you know, your taco or your, your tortillas and the lettuce and tomato, and blah, blah, blah. And then, the, and that's, you know, we're getting ready to have tacos, but then the taco warning is when you've got that taco and it's in your mouth. We're eating tacos. We're eating tacos. 
makes it real clear. Watch versus warning. I hope so. <laughs> Dylan Wood and I, uh, our reviewer Dylan Wood, we both liked it. Uh, so yeah, thanks for that one. So to get to it then, snow is falling currently here in Crested Butte. And I think we've spoken a bit about this, but there could be heavier and lighter snowfall coming through. Where, what are we at? Are we seven days, 10 days out from now? Yeah, um, it's actually my day off and I haven't looked as closely at the weather. By the way, you've had the busiest <laughs> day off. I asked like before I knew it was your day off, I like, was like, what have you been up to today? And you just started like a 10 minute long sentence. So if this is your day off, I don't, I couldn't handle your day on. Yeah, days off during avalanche cycles don't really exist for us. Um, there's just too much going on. But yeah, anyways, I didn't look closely at the weather this morning. I had a lot of other things going on. I, I left that up to the forecaster. But um, my sense from reading what he put out this morning is we're looking at a real big pulse coming in the next 24 to 36 hours, um, two to four feet of snow. So it's an atmospheric river. I saw the, the NWS, National Weather Service, said it's a AR5, which is the highest scale of the, on the atmospheric river scale, which it's like an extreme event, which is pretty cool. Um, those things come in warm and wet and windy. And we're going to see a big load of, of snow water equivalent um, in the next, you know, 36 hours or so. And then um, through New Year's, it looks like it's just continuing kind of like westerly flow like one pulse after another and i don't know if any of the other pulses will be quite as strong as this first one but it'll be continuous loading where i you know i just glanced at a couple products and it's like 100 inches by new year's it just like keeps coming i mean this one some of the models were showing like 40 to 60 inches just by christmas which is insane um, and awesome and then you know throughout the next two weeks it's like another another 50 inches on top of that you know like five to ten inches a day and i haven't looked closely at the details but i can say like with confidence that we may not see an end of snowfall until into the new year like it's just going to be steady which is great we need the moisture we need the snowpack and, and everyone loves a good powder day there'll be lots of them so yeah everybody definitely loves a pow day but we also don't want to see slides taking people out either inbounds or in the backcountry, right? And this might be kind of weird, but I think it might be kind of helpful for people. If you got to sort of choose how this snow would be coming in, give me your ideal setup in terms of temperatures and the rest, right? If we want to not just complete the most messed up, screwed up snowpack imaginable, but the opposite of that, right? What would that look like in your view? I think like a deal setup would be just snow falling without a weak layer. Um, Cause then it, you know, gradual snowfall that just keeps coming in without stressing something. And that the reality is that's not the case like here or really anywhere in the country. Cause we've had dry spells and early season weak layers um, are pretty common. So, so those layers are already there. Those layers are there. You're not getting rid of them. Um, we, you know, this setup isn't that bad in that we're getting the heaviest pulse early and that might really help test those weak layers and do some flushing and whatnot and then we'll continue to snow but the, the problem is like anytime it's just continuous loading like somewhere out there there's another weak layer that's going to reach its breaking point um, maybe those really weak ones are all going to go with this storm um, in the next couple of days but then as it continues to snow it's suddenly like 
slightly lower angle slopes that didn't go or a different aspect where those weak layers. And that's what I was, was kind of highlighting that earlier is that there's a lot of variability. So, um, you know, we, we know at this like first pulse that we're going to see a lot of avalanche activity because snow surfaces are weak. We're getting a lot of snow rapidly, but if it keeps loading, it reloads those, those paths that ran or it's re or it's loading onto more onto a slope that maybe didn't go or some, a different aspect, like I said. So like, it's just complex it's challenging there's not a good setup if it's going to keep snowing all the time the best setup is you just don't have any weak layers down there to to stress about or worry about um that's just not a reality so i mean the, the good thing is like if we can just keep crushing it for the next few weeks and get a nice deep snowpack out of this thing you know a lot of those weak layers will eventually gain strength once once they're buried underneath you know let's just say hypothetically we get six feet of snow like that's it suddenly moves the snowpack into a like rounding regime where those weak layers are gaining strength and there'll still be issues for a while. And, and, but it will be improving over time. And like after some amount of time, we're going to see that those weak layers won't be as bad. And, and, you know, it's rare to say that we're out of the woods ever in Colorado. There's always going to be issues, but like it won't be as bad. Um, the deeper the snowpack gets, the better it is. And that's our, that's our goal. Just keep burying it deeper and deeper and deeper. So let's talk about best practices right now. And maybe let's start for, I mean, some of these, I, I keep trying to think through what wouldn't be relevant for a very knowledgeable, experienced backcountry skier versus a brand new one. <laughs> like it's kind of in a way all the same, but let's start at its most basic level. And I guess if it is, if it does change your answer at all for, inexperienced backcountry skiers what would you advise them if they are living in an area that is going to be seeing some of this big loading there's a lot of different kind of users and demographics i could talk about and some some of the things that concern us one of the things you know in in crested butte in particular is that we have like avalanche paths right in town that the sort of really unaware users like basically your pedestrians who are out for a dog walk or a christmas stroll um aren't aware of that that's even a, an, a problem. So I don't know how common that is around the rest of the country. A lot of towns are probably, you know, the old distance from the avalanche terrain, which is nice. Um, here we, we kind of get those warnings out and that's one of the groups that we're worried about is just the like locals who are or not locals, the visitors to town who are unaware that like, if you walk your dog down peanut Lake road, you could get smashed by an avalanche. So um, that's one user group where we're just like, like you don't really think about this stuff as avalanche terrain because it's not like this huge swath of trees uh, or, you know, like a clear, you know, a classic looking avalanche path, but it's these like small road cuts and steep banks and small hills near town that like with four feet of snow on it and they come down onto a road um, that where it benches up deeply, like you can get buried by a pretty small slope. So that's, that's one group that we're targeting. And I guess like that message kind of carries over to everybody in the back country is that during these like high dangerous conditions, um, it's oftentimes the small slopes that get people. I think people know, most people know that like on a high danger day, you're not going to go center punch, you know, a big bowl somewhere in the back country. Like it just doesn't seem to make sense, but you're out there skiing powder and you're thinking like, Oh, we can work that. That's a pretty low slope angle. Then you like cross a little Creek bed. Like there's something like a small slope that like you get surprised by how much debris can pile up from a small slope over a Creek bed or 
you know, a little road cut or something like that. So I, th I think that's my like first advice to anybody, whether you're expert or beginner is, is be cautious around even small slopes. Just be, you know, aware that like small steep slopes can slide and be aware of what, where they're sliding into. Cause oftentimes these like smaller slopes go into a Creek bed or onto a bench. And those are the things that like, you know, you can get buried pretty quickly, pretty easily. Um, and, and we see that, you know, with, with avalanche fatalities, we see people on high danger days or, you know, considerable days getting buried in pretty small terrain features. And it's really sad because you're like, man, if they had just made two turns to the left, they wouldn't have been near that thing. And it, it's not a super obvious avalanche path, but it can go. So that's, that's the one thing I think, you know, the, the advice that you'll hear us saying in our forecasts, um, over and over is, you know, avoid traveling on slopes that are as like 30 degrees or steeper and avoid traveling below those slopes as well. So when, when we're in these cycles, um, it's not just the steep terrain that slides, but it's the steep terrain that naturally slides and comes down into lower angle terrain. So you need to be aware of your overhead hazards. And as this storm cycle progresses, we'll see an increase in expected avalanche size. So like starting with the early part of the cycle, it's, you know, we're going to see large avalanches and by the end of the cycle, or middle of the cycle sometime in the future, we're going to see those sizes creep up to, you know, what we call very large, like D3s, um, maybe even larger. So like depending on how big the storm gets, but basically like the bigger the size we're expecting, the farther those things are going to run towards the valley bottoms. And you could have one of these things come out of a, an alpine start zone that you can't even see and you're down in the flats and you wouldn't even expect it, but it comes down and hits you. And so um, another big kind of takeaway message is just like, we're just saying avoid avalanche train. That doesn't mean just the steep slopes. That means the runouts below the steep slopes. Just unpack that for just another sentence or two, at least just, I, I don't know. I, I just, I feel like if we can clarify as much as humanly possible. So forgive me to those of you who are already extremely clear what Zach just said, but I think some of these things are worth underscoring, right? So yeah. So we know that, you know, gravity is the main player in what's causing these things to slide down the slope. Slope angle is the primary component. So generally speaking, slopes steeper than 30 or avalanches occur on slopes steeper than 30 degrees. There are some exceptions. We've seen some stuff break into the 20s, um, but for the most part, it's 30 degrees or steeper. And that's where an avalanche starts. But once it gets started, it can run down into a lower angle slope. So, tr so slope angle is your like number one tool for identifying avalanche terrain, any slope that's steeper than 30 degrees. There are, of course, subsection, uh, exceptions like very dense trees. Um, can You can travel safely through a very dense cluster of trees that's steeper than 30. But for the most part, if rule of thumb, anything steeper than 30 could or is likely to be avalanche terrain. Um, but then you have to consider that slopes steeper than 30 degrees, the avalanche can run down into low angle terrain. And not only naturally, like during a natural cycle, but also with the types of avalanche problems we get here in Colorado and really around the country of persistent slabs where you can initiate a failure on a low angle train that propagates up into a steep train above you. And I think that concept is surprising to some people um, where you're like, oh, you'd have to be on the steep slope to trigger the avalanche. That's not true. The way avalanches fail is it's a collapse in a weak layer that then propagates around the snowpack. So if you are on a, on a flat slope with the snowpack, the same ingredients that's in the start zone, and you get that collapse, it can, it can go all the way up to the start zone and bring the slab down on you. So did that flush it out a little bit more? I think so. And yeah, so point is, if you're the first in your group 
to ski down a slope and you don't you didn't rip anything be real careful about where you might be standing waiting for the others and what you might be traversing across in terms of what can still propagate yeah i mean maybe that's not the the message that i would say is like you know if you're skiing an avalanche slope make sure like during those days when it's like really dangerous out it's like it's best to just make a plan where you're not going to be traveling on or below that like choose pull out the map look at maybe cal topo or something that has slope angles and choose a route that you know go to one of those areas that you know is low angle and just have a fun day and you know but yeah as you're like coming out at the end of the day and if if you have a route that crosses underneath something you need to be aware of that and know that that you're going into a hazard zone so yeah as as best you can just try and stay away from those areas when it's really going off out there other best practices i guess this is like something that gets um communicated in these avalanche classes but maybe it's clear that it's not always followed as you know try to reduce the exposure of the number of people in your group for a couple reasons one is you know if there's three of you and you all get caught at the same time then there's no one to rescue you Um, versus if it's just one person on the slope then you have two people to help dig and the odds of survival are a lot better and and so you know um, and then obviously just like yeah reducing reducing the number of people that get caught is, is the best strategy so like I said last year we saw a couple of these instances where you know like the i think the one in utah was drawing a blank if it was four or five people that were all killed in avalanche it was a multiple it was a large group that was um caught and buried and there was you know one person was able to dig and and rescue some people miraculously and, and there were still quite a few fatalities and it was like a large group on one slope um and we had similar things in colorado where we saw groups of three two or three um, multiple times get buried and so yeah the take home there is is like if you can choose routes that where you can manage the terrain if you're going to go into avalanche terrain where you can manage it where it's only one person at a time like choose something with a really safe up route walking up a, a ridge line or up a low angle slope and you know and if if your appetite is taking you towards steeper terrain if the conditions you know permit um ski it one at a time pull out of that run out and move into a safe zone um you know choose an appropriate safe zone to to regroup because that's you know i i don't think like any one of these groups that got caught as big groups wouldn't have understood that i think it's just like they were choosing train that day that like it, it was hard to navigate one at a time like maybe they're as a group traversing trying to get to some some ridge line or whatever and they all were going up the slope that they th- maybe didn't think was as bad of avalanche train or as hazardous and then they you know like i said these conditions where you can pull out the whole slope with from below it and you know i think that's pretty common it's like people don't think like oh we're not all on this on the avalanche slope at the same time but there's five of you skinning up below that avalanche slope like you're still exposing the whole group so like in that case if that's if your route is crossing underneath one of those things or, you know going up one like again the best you can to reduce your exposure the better but if if you have to cross through something like that do it one at a time take a little bit of extra time spread out you know to like send somebody across it and then once they're across and send the next person and, and that way again it just like improves your odds if something happens so focusing back specifically on this storm would your best advice right now be that Look, if you're really pretty unsure of what conditions are like, one, well, ski in bounds, or maybe you'll say, 
well, you can still get into the back country, keep it 20 degrees or lower in terms of the fields you're on or what, how, how, like in terms of general recommendations or again, best practices, how do you answer a question like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think if you, if you aren't ex- experienced in identifying and recognizing avalanche terrain, it's a great week to ski at the ski resort. Like they're going to be getting fresh pow every single day. They're doing mitigation up there to reduce the risks. Um, so the, it's a, it's a great time to go to the ski resort. If you're competent in identifying avalanche terrain, you can look at slope angles. You can recognize overhead hazards. You can read a map. Um, I, I'm not an abstinence guy. Like I go out on high danger days, just like I do on low danger days. And, and you can travel safely in the backcountry on high danger days. You know, it depends on the terrain where you're at. And, you know, around Crest Butte, we have a lot, or at least a number of like great low angle options. And so again, my, my number is 30. Um, if you want to take an extra step back and give yourself a little more buffer 25, I think, you know, being able to recognize those avalanche slopes and stay off them when it's, when it's really dangerous out is the, is the key and you can still have a great day in the backcountry having fun on low angle slopes and you know the snowmobiles are a great toy for keeping people safe on powder days because you can have a ton of fun on a zero degree slope right it's just like roosting around and getting face shots skiing as it when it gets really deep it can be hard to have get good turns when it's like super deep and you can't make a turn on a 25 degree slope it's just too deep so you know, if you got, if you want to ski fast and charge hard, maybe go to the ski resort, you know, and just let it settle down a little bit. I want to let you get going. Cause I know you with your, you know, it's your day off. It's a hell of a day off, but if I let you go, you get to go skiing. So maybe this will be our last question. As we said, I mean, you're out most days of the week, fair to say in the back country. Yeah. I'd say I get out about five days a week. So some people might be interested to know, what do you keep in your pack? Yeah, that's a, a great question. There's like some essentials that I never go without. And then there's some things that I kind of mix and match depending on the, the weather and where I'm going and, and whatnot. So that, you know, the essentials are the beacon sho- shovel probe, right? Um, I wear my beacon in my snow pants. I've got a s- specific beacon pocket. And that way I, if I'm wearing pants, I'm... <laughs> probably have my beacon with when me. when you're wearing <laughs> pants yeah you on know, those there's occasions. something going wrong if i'm out there skiing without pants on you know my i have packs with an airbag and i have packs without and i'll say for myself it depends on like where i'm going and my confidence in and the snowpack and a very if i'm trying to travel light and fast versus whatever so so there is some variability in, in how i choose my airbag pack but i think in general like most days especially when it's you know pretty hazardous out there i'm wearing my airbag pack um i have a a little mesh bag that i keep kind of my like called survival kit and it has a lot of different things in it it's everything from like like some tools like a leatherman um you know screwdriver that sort of thing um i have fire starter kit in there um batteries like spare batteries for and a headlamp so a headlamp with spare batteries for that that also work for my beacon i have a little battery pack that i can charge up my cell phone with um, because i think that's a pretty common issue cell phones die when they're in the backcountry get cold out Um, i have a delorme inreach that you know when it's a field day i set on tracking mode so my colleagues can see where i'm at in the field and if it's a fun day i'll just turn it off and i if an emergency happens i can send out a message 
um, that battery pack also charges that thing in case that thing dies. Can I ask what, what battery pack are you using? Oh, it's a little like $10 thing. You get a gas station. Um, it's enough to like basically charge a cell phone once. Um, you've seen they're like the size of a lighter and you have, a, and I bring a little like USB lightning cord that goes to my phone and goes to the inReach. So yeah, something just cause we know that batteries die and we rely on electronics more and more these days. So I, it's nice to have, um, what else is in that kit? I could bring a bunch of ski straps for anything from first aid to repairing gear or whatnot. You know, those are always handy. Um, uh, yeah, a little tiny repair kit for my, um, ski gear and then a first aid kit. Uh, I think the essentials there are like wound management, you know, stopping a bleed, um, CPR, um, some pain medications, and then some, um, I mean like hand warmers, like chemical hand warmers and things like that. I've got a bivy sack that doubles as a sled. If I need to drag somebody, it's probably not the greatest sled out there, but, um, trying to find the balance between weight and and carry the whole nine yards with me. So yeah, uh, it's a, it's a little baby sack that would hopefully help me survive the night. Um, if it's, if I got to spend the night and also help drag someone a little distance, if we need to get them to a helicopter, you know, food and water, obviously if it's a cold day, maybe I substitute the water for like hot soup or a thermos of hot tea or something like that. I'm trying to think what else I always bring a pair of spare gloves. Cause you never know how wet your gloves are going to get. Um, or if you lose one, it rolls down the slope or something like that. A handful of buffs for keeping your head warm, um, first aid reasons as well. To me, I always try to bring one layer that I don't expect to wear unless shit hits the fan. Um, like a puffy that I'm like, yeah, I, I'll be fine through the day, but like if we get stopped and we need to hunker down, like it's nice to have a puffy. Uh, chapstick and sunscreen, sunglasses. I have a little pit kit that I bring. If it's a work day, it's a little bit more robust kit. If it's a fun day, I, there's a f- few things that I'll ditch from it. Um, I think the most essential thing that I'll, I'll bring is a, a snow saw for cutting column tests um, and then a cord for isolating tests. And between those two, I can look at most of the things I want to look at on a fun day. With it's a work day, I bring, you know, notebook, hand lens, and crystal cards and all the rest. Um, oh, radios. I don't always bring radios, but the more I, I'm always like, I should bring it every time. Cause it's, it's super useful. Um, just for pitching out slopes. If you're skiing and you kind of run out of sight of your partners, you can talk to each other or it's like you ski a long run, you know, sometimes a safe zone isn't within shouting distance of your partner. If you're skiing a long avalanche path and, and so I might ski all the way down and then I want to shout up and they can't hear me cause it's windy. So like having that radio to be like, like, yeah, it, was, it felt a little more wind loaded than I expected on the skiers left. So maybe stay on the right side or like, oh, there's like a couple of sharks out there, like rock, you know, rocks poking out on that rollover. So take it easy, you know, just talking to your partners or if your partners get out of sight, it's a great tool to have. Yes. The, the inReach, I think I mentioned that already my electronics are the inReach, the cell phone and the, the radio and try and keep those away from my beacon. Um, the, the recommendation is 30 centimeters or about a foot away from your beacon. So there's no electrical interference. If you're searching, um, you want a little bit more distance than that. Not a small number of things. It's funny, like assuming you're being honest here, Mm -hmm. especially on your fun days, I would have guessed you personally were rolling out with fewer items. 
And so I guess I say that just because people listening to this, if I had to guess, complete guess, you just named a bigger list than a lot of people are rolling out into the backcountry with, I think. Yeah, like I guess what are the things that people, you think they skimp on there? I think the if the shit hits the fan and now I've got to spend a night in the backcountry, that's I think probably the biggest thing where the additional layers, the bivy, you know, that's my hunch. Totally. And, and I do like, I adjust my pack for the weather, like my emergency layer, my puffy changes depending on the temps. If it's negative 20 out versus if it's a spring tour. Um, and I actually, I like change like what shovel I bring sometimes, which is silly. I should bring the same shovel every time, but like weight does matter. Right. And it's like on a field day where I'm going to be digging a lot, or if it's a hazardous day and I'm like, oh man, like versus like maybe a low danger day, I've got a smaller shovel that like, I want to be able to travel a bit lighter and, and, you know, move quicker through the terrain or something like that. In which case I actually, I go with a little bit smaller shovel and a, and a smaller probe, (laughs) if you can believe that. Um, there are, so like I have all the essentials, but I kind of change what they are depending on the day and where I'm going. And, you know, I think that like overnight, if shit hits the fan kit, if you're just going out for a tour, that's like within an hour of the trailhead, like you could pare that down quite a bit versus if you're going to be out somewhere remote where, yeah, like, you know, it's snowing out and there's no way a helicopter is going to get to you overnight. Like you got to be able to survive the night. So yeah, there is some variability in there. And I mean, my pack changes from I've got like a on those really light days I'll bring out I think it's like a 28 liter pack and then on the big like an average day it's a 35 liter pack and I can fit all that in a 35 liter yeah, yeah and I, I should say I'm I'm pretty forgetful so I have a checklist and I didn't bring it for this conversation ironically but um I have a checklist that I leave in my car and anytime I'm heading out I read through that before I go out and and I did forget to mention um I also usually carry a helmet um helmets are great not only for crashes you know if you're skiing downhill and you topple over and you hit a rock but um in 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 the case of an avalanche protect you from trauma um you know a lot of times avalanches sweep you through trees and if you have that little extra protection on your head and skins in case i didn't mention that you did not mention skins you use skins (laughs) i did not know this i just thought you sidestepped your entire i know i sidestep i boot pack everything um (laughs) even if this is a good point even if you're a side country or um, going out of bounds from the ski resort and you're just skiing downhill and then traversing back even if there's no uphill travel having skins in your pack is i highly recommend it because if your partner gets caught in an avalanche and they're uphill from you and you got a you know post hole through eight feet of debris to get up to them like you're not going to be able to do that quickly um, it could take you hours to cover the mountain train that it could take you 10 minutes on skin so throw some skins in your pack even if you're a side country rider it's just um allows you to travel quickly to get to your partners in, in the case of an avalanche. All right. Well, final thoughts here, final concerns. Yeah, I think we touched on a lot of great topics there. I, I think kind of like take home message here at the end is, is going into these next few weeks. We've got a lot of red flags as forecasters that we are worried about. One is it's a holiday. We know there's going to be a lot of use, um, a mix of experienced and inexperienced folks out there. And we've got this continuous loading on several persistent weak layers. And anytime you're getting continuous loading on those things, it's a recipe for trouble. Um, and so just tell people to kind of take it easy out there, um, trim back your expectations on terrain and 
enjoy that powder, but just do it in, in a safe way. Here, here. Hey man, thank you. We are really lucky to have you here. And I know many people here feel that way. And so thank you for the work you and your team is doing at the CBAC and um, stay safe out there. But hopefully the next time I see you, you'll have the oversized pink sunglasses on. <laughs> but feel free to just wear pants with those instead of <laughs> instead of the short shorts. But no, it's it's really cool to get to just pick your brain and hear how you were kind of recapping last season, the things you're wondering about for this season. And I just think it's huge that even for somebody listening where maybe they learned nothing new, and I doubt there's that many people out there that would be in that category. I think just we got to keep to mind a number of these factors, right? And I think, you know, one or two of the things you've said, it's like, oh, right, I should give that particular issue maybe more consideration than I have. That hasn't really been front front of mind. And so I think these conversations are really valuable and uh, appreciate you sitting down with me. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Be safe. Talk to you soon. Sounds good. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Zach once again for the conversation and for the great work that he does here in the Gunnison Valley. I want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again this week over on our Off the Couch podcast also on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast. And then right now, I'm actually going to get off this recording and record a conversation with Scott Andrus, founder of ON3P Skis. I think a lot of you have been wondering what's going on with ON3P, and so I am literally going to have that conversation with Scott right now. All right, everybody, take care.